0: Let's pray one more time. Father, um, take these few fish, these few loaves. uh, Of what I bring, Lord, today, would you multiply that to bless your people? Lord, would you make your presence and your voice known? Would you translate the words, Lord, uh, as only you can, to the hearts of each and every one of us? do your work today, Lord. We invite you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's okay, I've kept a Kleenex box close at hand. So, today is the start of a two-part message. Um, You'll be thrilled to know that uh, in the preparation of this, I've had at least four iterations of just this message, and each iteration has been shorter than the last. So... It's been on a good track. I think you'll appreciate that. Um, but the topic is on the spiritual realm uh, this morning. I think it's a good fit with what we've been doing the, in the Ephesians study that we're, we're taking this short break from. Uh, and you'll notice throughout uh, this I'll be quoting Ephesians uh, frequently. So here's what I see. At a high level in daily living, I think we're bombarded with the reality of this natural world this physical realm, uh, that which we perceive and experience through our five senses. You know, it dominates uh, most of our thoughts and time and energy. And it certainly consumes the focus uh, of most of the inhabitants of this planet. And yet, it's not a complete reality, is it? I mean, it's certainly not the eternal reality, as far as this present form of the world goes. And as followers of Jesus, uh, we serve a Savior today that we've never seen, right? We obey and worship the Father who Jesus affirmed is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. We're indwelled by the very Spirit of God who ministers to our souls at our deepest invisible consciousness. So there's this one level I recognize. I don't need to convince you of the existence of the spiritual realm. You're already part of it. But possibly. Uh, I think our conviction sometimes can be more an intellectual assent rather than an actual conviction based on our experience. Now, I, I think if we could step back objectively and assess our daily lives, we might be obligated to confess that in practice more often than not we're unaware of the spiritual realm including the Holy Spirit in this physical form I mean it's a great struggle for us uh, as believers to grow in our ability to recognize his presence recognize his voice hear it clearly amidst all the noise of this world and you know when you consider our spiritual journey that we're all on uh, in a to a great great sense, it's a commitment to change, uh, change and growth into the likeness of Jesus. Right, and, and everything else flows rightly from there. So as we come together uh, and embark uh, down this path of spiritual change under the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, um, you think about the process of what we do and why, in part, we gather together, and also why it's so important. So there's this function of imparting biblical knowledge, and we encourage one another to prayerful reflection and study around what we're given. And the goal in our minds is change. Uh, That we would be led to taking some faith-filled steps of risk, of obedient steps of faith. And often that's going to involve, as we go along that path, repentance, repentance from the sins, the stuff that we've been doing in rebellion against God, and the lies that we've been believing. But ultimately, we hope that that will translate into uh, greater understanding, conviction, a growth in our faith and our trust, and most importantly, it results in a heart change, right? And that's the path to spiritual growth, uh, increasingly in the likeness of Jesus. Jesus. And the ultimate evidence of that, right, is the growth of sacrificial love uh, in the example of Jesus, right? And then along the way, we're learning to use the spiritual tools that God's provided for us, his word, prayer, the spiritual gifting that he's given each one of us uniquely, the spiritual authority that we have in Christ, and all of that under the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that's the path that we intend and we promote and, and we're embarking upon today. But there's another side of that, right? On the other hand, if we were to remain in spiritual ignorance, it leaves us trapped in this life. You see, when we don't understand, we become easily confused. We lose sight of God's perspective, God's worldview. God's And we have little idea of what it means really to be his children. What role God has called us to in this world. So the result is we become frustrated in our faith, right? We can lack purpose beyond our self-centered ambitions. And we subsequently open ourselves up to needless suffering, frankly. So my goal the next two weeks, kind of a long intro, but my hopes is that we could kind of lift our heads up in the midst of the demands of this physical world and that we could see God's perspective, we could gain insights into his view of the world, his creation. And I believe with the help of the Holy Spirit, that's going to lead us into deeper levels of what Jesus intended to give us when he came, and that was freedom and joy. And I think for a lot of us, those are missing elements in our daily experience. So let's look at uh, the, the core passage of Scripture this morning. It's one of the parables of Jesus found in Matthew 13. Then the first portion of this is verses 24 through 30. Uh, in your rack Bibles there, if you, if you need a Bible there, that's on page 818. So Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. So it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now thankfully this is one of those parables that Jesus also gives his disciples an interpretation and we of course gain the benefit of that. That's found later in the same chapter, beginning in verse 36, and let me read that as well. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So our challenge this morning in my mind is that as we live life in this physical world, uh, it's not unique to us. There's encouragement here. See, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was continually challenging his listeners to grapple with the reality of the spiritual realm And the meaning of its existence to their lives. So, Jesus, in this parable, in quick order, he's given us the big picture. He's showing us the greater reality of what's going on in this same world we live in today. Nothing's changed. The meta narrative, if you will, of the spiritual realm and the natural realm as they intersect and, in some regards, today collide. Jesus has come he is the son of man in the parable bringing the good news of the immediate inbreaking of the kingdom of god into a world that is broken in sin some will embrace and receive the good news becoming the good seed that grow in right response becoming the sons of god's kingdom while others will reject the gospel and so doing remain sons of the evil one bound in slavery to his temporary kingdom. Don't miss the relational link in this this parable. When we look at it closely, we recognize there's no middle ground. Everyone in this world is either related to Jesus or they're related to the devil. One kingdom stands against the other, and everybody belongs to one or the other. That's tough to grapple with. Now, the parable as Jesus speaks it to the crowd, I think, left them perplexed. Um, And and the first thought that comes to mind is, why would a good sower allow his wheat to grow with the weeds? That's what that first audience had to have been asking. And there's a risk for us to get stuck there, too, and, uh, and... where we go down that path of asking all the lies about God, uh, and uh, we're not necessarily given answers to all those. But in this case here, the, the real core point that Jesus is making is that not that the weeds are there with the wheat, but the fact that there is a final judgment. The kingdom has now come, but there's a final judgment yet to take place, a harvest. So that says our current situation is temporary there is coming a point where Jesus will lead a final judgment that will weed out, separate the evil sons and the enemy for their destruction, and accomplish it through his angels. In the meantime, the sons of the kingdom of God and the sons of the enemy will journey together in this current world until Jesus comes again. Now, that seems straightforward enough, um, and we've all read these parables many times, and I think one possible conclusion we could come to was uh, well, um, it sounds like we just need to hang in there and make the best of things until Jesus comes again. And he's going to set things right and he's going to get all the bad seed out and clean things up and we're good to go, right? And I think not. Um, so it, let's dig a little deeper. To do that, what I want to do is, and I'm laying groundwork here, particularly for next week. Uh, it, next week really is the culmination and the desire of, of where I want to most get us to, but there's some groundwork I think we need to lay first to help us towards that end. Um, so let's pull out some core elements here out of this parable. And the first one, I just, let's start with angels. You know, they seem to have a pretty significant role in God's redemptive plan, uh, we don't know a lot about angels, um, yet they they punctuate the biblical narrative really from start to finish. But there's far more speculation, creative speculation, regarding about angels than there are facts. Um, but uh, here is what I hope to do: is a quick review of what I think we know biblically, and that and, and even that we have to piece together uh, across uh, Scripture. And, by the way, just a good example, and and I always encourage you, uh, you know, particularly in these topical studies, often the ones that I I speak to, um, I'm pulling scripture from lots of places across the Bible, and uh, uh, that's a necessity when we're trying to understand the whole of of what the Bible has to say on a given topic. At the same time, too, there's a little risk in that if, if we don't do that well, and so... I've put all the scriptures up here, and a number of them I'm just going to pass over fairly quickly, but um, uh, in, in the same topic here, you know, the, the risk is we also don't take one verse and run with it as if it said all there is to say about a given topic. So it's important for us to, and this is why we encourage you to read the entirety of your Bible, because uh, that's how we know the full breadth of what uh, God is thinking and his convictions and his heart. Um, so I'm going to move through this fairly rapidly, and in the process I'll be summarizing scripture, kind of for the sake of time. Uh, and then the references are on the slides if you want to uh, write those down. First of all, angels are part of this heavenly host. Uh, they're, they're created beings that are not part of the creation of the earth, the garden, and, the man- and mankind, as covered in the Genesis account. Um, they are of a different uh, created order in the total of God's creation. Uh, we don't have any details of, of this creation effort or when it occurred. Um, I should note in here, too, I'm, gonna, I'm tossing into angels, seraphim, and uh, cherubim, uh, two other categories of, of angels uh, mentioned just a few times in Scripture, but we'll look at them as a whole. But net-net, angels are created spiritual beings. Uh, When we look to Psalm 148, uh, it says that God commanded and they, including angels, were created. We know that angels are personal beings. They're not generic in form, but they're unique individuals, like you and I, uh, with different roles and it appears different abilities. Uh, One example, in Daniel 12.1, we're introduced to the angel Michael, and it refers to him in this passage as the great prince of God's host. Later, this same Michael is, is named in Jude 9. And we're told about a confrontation between Michael as an archangel, as he's identified there, and Satan over the body of Moses. We have no idea what that's about. Um, and then Michael again appears in Revelation twelve seven, and in this case, he is leading the angelic host of God in battle against Satan, identified as the dragon. Ah. Oh. It is kind of worth noting that in church history, um, lots of people have intem- have attempted to create titles and ranks and geographical assignments and stuff for angels, uh, kind of creating an angelology, if you will. And, uh, and it often goes far beyond scripture. Um, it, 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 at its heart, it's kind of speculative. It's creative, yes. Ultimately, I think it can be distracting and, uh, and even potentially divisive, I, I think, God is very intent on why it is that he has only given us that that he has we're we're not to get caught up in 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 the study of angels because just even the angels say no worship him and so we just put that in there but just to recognize there's books out there and and lots of speculation around angels but uh, we we would struggle to anchor those things uh, biblically so angels are in direct service to god uh, and, and they're often designated as angels of God. Uh, they're part of heaven's host, and, and it's important to recognize that though that they're spiritual in nature, there is no barrier for them between the heavenlies and the earth, the physical realm. They can choose to materially appear to manifest their presence in this physical realm. Now, most often in the biblical record, what we find is they appear in human form, as best we can tell. And you see this as early as Genesis 19, when uh, two angels come to Sodom to save Lot and his family before the destruction of the city. And then in the New Testament, there's lots of angelic appearances in the Gospels, uh, particularly around the coming of Jesus, makes perfect sense. Uh, the angel Gabriel, another named angel in, stri- in, in Scripture, appears to Zechariah in Luke 1, and uh, then appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1 as well, and then other angels appear to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, right, in Luke 2, 9. And after Jesus' resurrection in the empty tomb, uh, angels again appear there in Mark 16. That's interesting, I think without exception, though, it, it, when angels choose to appear right before the eyes of man, uh, the typical reaction is fear, sometimes even terror, and, and uh I kind of get that if we put ourselves in their sandals, that would be pretty disruptive. Uh, uh, having somebody materialize before you—I can't say exactly what they look like—but if they're in glowing white robes, maybe a sword in hand, blazing eyes—I'm I'm thinking that that would get my attention and and uh, and I would be freaking out. But. You, it's cool, though. We most often see angels calming people down, right? They're encouraging them not to fear. This is of God, and I have this special, oftentimes, message for you. Now, like us, angels are moral free agents, uh, but unlike us, they're holy in nature. Um, they were not born into sin. The flesh our sinful nature, but they are morally capable of choosing uh, good and evil, and a sense of that, Revelation 19, 9-10, when John, the apostle, is describing how he has received this revelation from an angel, and then the rebuke that he receives when he begins to worship the same angel, and the angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, other passages, though, make clear that angels are subject to judgment, uh, in part because of moral failure. Uh, In Jude 6, we're told, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And that becomes increasingly clear as we go along. Um, So we don't have to read very long uh, or very far in Scripture to understand that angels have powers and abilities that are beyond us. Um, 2 Peter, Peter refers uh, chapter 2 to angels as having greater might and power than us. We see that demonstrated both in overwhelming ways, uh, like in 2 Chronicles 32, where an angel comes and wipes out the Assyrian army, or subtle forms of supernatural power. Like when the angel rescues Peter from jail in Acts 12. And, and you recall as he comes into the jail, the cell lights up. Peter's chains fall off. They walk out as if invisible past the active guards on duty. The city gates just automatically open before them before the angel disappears. It would seem, too, that angels possess understanding and knowledge that we don't have, and that might be a direct result of position. But, you know, as one's act, uh, actively and often in the direct presence of the Father and the Son, they, they have this perspective that we don't have this side of heaven, that we don't enjoy. And yet it seems like also a position of honor, certainly, in that uh, they, they form something of almost an inner counsel of God. Uh, it, Jesus acknowledges in Matthew twenty four thirty six, but concerning that day, speaking to his second coming, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Clearly implying that angels know a lot about what's going on in earth and creation. And then Jesus says in Luke twelve eight, of presenting us of faith to the angels and God the Father. So we get some insight into the inner workings, I think, of the heavenly host and the role that angels play. And to that end, as we delve more into the roles of this angelic host, we, we find they have this very high calling of worship. They bring rightful praise and glory to God. And I, and I love this passage. We have this incredible image given to us in Revelation 5, uh, verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John's description there is angels without count before him and the magnitude of those voices. Clearly, there are a lot of angels. The angelic host is large. And we've already seen how uh, angels act as messengers of God to individual people. And there's some sense of acting in a more corporate way towards mankind. They seem to play some role in the delivery of God's law. Not a lot of clarity around that, but Hebrews 2.1 tells us about the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So they have some active role there. I think what is very clear in the biblical narrative, though, is that they execute judgment on God's enemies. I had referred to... uh, the Chronicles passage also uh, reflected in 2 Kings 19, the, uh, when the king of Assyria came against King Hezekiah. And the passage says, And that night the angel, one angel, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Wow. Then in the New Testament, on a smaller scale, Acts 12, 21 through 35, talks about the attempt that Herod has made on the apostle Peter's life, who was rescued by an angel. And Herod in this scene is receiving worship that belongs to God. And we're told immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He goes on to tell us that he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Ouch. We know that angels will support Jesus in the second coming. Glorious image. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And I think near and dear to all of us, uh, whether we're cognizant of or not, but uh, angels are often seen as the deliverers of God's providential care for us as his children. You know, Luke, the generally recognized author of Hebrews, tells us of angels in Uh, chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So they encourage and strengthen us, even when we're completely unaware. Now, I think it's important to note, nowhere in Scripture are we ever instructed or encouraged, directly or indirectly, to seek to engage angels. They will make their presence known at God's instruction. The angels themselves tell us to worship God, right? He is the right focus of our attention. So you might say, okay, Craig, interesting. Cool, even. But kind of what's the point? I think my desire in sharing what we've gone through is that the angelic host is real. Present today, right now, active in both the spiritual and the physical realms. Uh, Despite our inability to see that, and it brings to mind the story of the servant of Elisha in 2 Kings 6, where the servant's eyes were open to see that he and the prophet that were under attack were being protected by a great force of flaming chariots of the spiritual realm. So I believe the angelic activity of God is all about us whether we're cognizant of or not. But if you believe in the existence of our trinitarian God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one who you cannot see, though you may experience him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you believe the biblical testimony, then this angelic host is undeniable. And if that's true, then this next group in the spiritual realm is equally true. Jesus, in the parable of the weeds, speaks of the enemy, right? The devil, who sows the weeds. And though Jesus doesn't name the forces of the devil, we know them to be fallen angels. Thinking about the attributes of kind of this mighty being in God's creation, that what they might be then in a fallen state dedicated to evil. Again, like angels, we kind of have to piece together across the the biblical narrative to get some understanding around this demonic force that's active. First of all, we have this enemy then, right? Satan or Lucifer. He's the chief, the instigator, the leader of all those spiritual, supernatural, yet evil beings who are subservient to him in his temporary kingdom. Like angels, we, we don't We don't know the clear origin of demonic forces in Scripture. We're not given the exact timing and the nature of their fall from God's service uh, from this heavenly angelic host they were once part of. There are two passages in prophetic books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and some believe them to be descriptive of Satan. And and I would acknowledge to you that that's not universally accepted. Just some, some uh, a little bit of background around biblical interpretation when it comes to, to prophecy. So, in this case, we have, we have two prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, and in, in their case, they are people who are, on behalf of God, forth telling a message. And this word forth telling means they're speaking into their own immediate context. But then they also have another role of foretelling. They're speaking into a future context that has yet to happen. And so they kind of have this dual role. Some more foretelling, others in some cases more foretelling. The The challenge though is, is uh, that's, that's a core part of the challenge of, of uh, interpreting uh, prophetic scripture. They have, one of the challenges, they have this kind of telescopic view of time and and maybe the best analogy is, so if you looked at the Cascade Mountains from a long distance away, all the peaks look fairly close together, uh, but as you get closer and closer to the mountains, you realize that, no, these mountains, in many cases, are miles and miles apart. And that's kind of the challenge that the prophet has as they view this issue of time. And, uh, but all that said... Uh, and I'm just going to briefly go over these two passages, but um, I think when you consider the whole of Scripture on the topic of Satan, uh, these two passages do seem to ring true at some level. Um, They seem consistent. Uh, As such, they might prove helpful in understanding the prominent role that Satan plays in this spiritual realm. Um, And though the passages will speak to kings of the world at a particular time, I think it's, you quickly see that the language really transcends a simple earthly setting, implying that someone greater than an earthly political power in my mind may also be in scope of the intended uh, meaning. So this first passage, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, it's, it's named as aimed at the king of Babylon, but as we consider its application to Satan. It tells us he was the morning star, an angel of light, that he was cast out of heaven, out of God's presence, sent to the earth, filled with pride, desiring to usurp God's authority, but destined to fail against the sovereign power of the only true God. Then in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, this passage is, is speaking and naming the king of Tyre. Uh, but if we also attribute it to Satan, we learn that he was perfect in his creation, of great wisdom, beautiful, dazzling present in the Garden of Eden, assigned as the Garden Angel, one close to God. Blameless to start, but ultimately he chose to turn to wickedness, violence, and sin. He was driven out from God's presence in disgrace. Great pride in his own splendor, wisdom, and beauty was his downfall. And he was expelled to earth for his ultimate destruction. Now, at best, maybe we can say that these prophecies may contain some shadow of Satan's background. Uh, what Scripture is clear on, though, when it comes to Satan and his demonic followers that rebelled against God, they have been cast out of heaven, out of the personal presence of God, and this likely happened before the fall of humans. In, in Revelation 12:4, from. It's, it, The context is the battle in heaven and Satan being expelled from God's presence. And the verse uh, goes on to say, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And that's pretty generally interpreted to mean that when Satan fell from heaven, he took a lot of angels with him. So that said, the implications is that there's a lot of demons, sufficient enough that for a demonic presence uh, virtually anywhere in the world. Now, Revelation 12 goes on uh, in verse 9, key passage here, and the great dragon, Satan, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then picking up again in verse 12, the second half of that verse, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. As I pondered on that, just very quickly, what came to mind is we wonder where the spirit of mass murderers come from, who in their own pain want to take as many people as they can with them. It's like, ah, here's the origin of that. Now, I want to be really clear on one point here. Satan and his minions stand defeated and condemned. This is abundantly clear in Scripture. Jesus, reflecting on his own sacrifice yet to come on the cross, says in John 12, 31, Now the judgment of this world, uh, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal file prepared for the devil and his angels. And then again, Revelation 27 through 10. And they, meaning Satan and his forces, marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But that said, Satan and his forces aren't done yet, are they? I mean, we commonly acknowledge, we use language like the war is won, but the battle still rages, right? Another way of looking at it is the victory has been uh, been won, uh, but yet still yet to be fully enforced. It's kind of the mop-up phase, if you will. Uh, They are today fully committed to opposing God, Opposing God's people, committed to perpetuating the continued enslavement of mankind for whatever time is remaining for them. They are the enemy of every soul, of every man, woman, and child. Why is that? Because all of mankind is made in the image of God, who Satan so hates and is so intent on stealing both God's glory and demeaning God. And I think this is an area where we have a lot to learn. Uh, Paul encouraged the Corinthian church uh, uh, in one passage towards unity with Christ through love and forgiveness, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Then he goes on to reveal a secondary but important outcome for he and the church. And he says that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Now, as followers of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. Let me repeat that. We have nothing to fear in Christ. But we can be outwitted through our own ignorance. We can open ourselves to unnecessary strife and struggle and suffering, and I think it's important to step back because there's, there's kind of a reality check I think we need. And when we ask ourselves, what are the sources of evil in this world? Where does evil come from? And I think lest we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're nothing but innocent victims, we have to step up and admit that mankind is a significant contributor to the whole of evil. We have a sin nature, what the Bible calls our flesh, the natural man. And even us who belong to Christ, covered in his blood, there are still parts of our lives he is not yet fully Lord, and as a result, we still sin. And Scripture is so clear. Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart, our heart, is deceitful, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3:23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions, all of us. Galatians 5:19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident: the works of our sinful nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I wonder to myself, how many cycles of the local and national news do I need to view before it sinks in that man is not inherently good? There are no scientific, medical, social, psychological, or political solutions or programs that will ever change the desperately wicked heart of mankind. That's a job that only Jesus can do. Now, the second source of evil in the world is the world, as the word is used in the New Testament. And I'm going to have a lot more to say about this next week. Um, But for now, Scripture tells us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we've already looked at this as a church in our study. And you were dead in the trespasses uh, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 1 John two fifteen and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. For this point today, it's sufficient to say that the world in this New Testament context uh, greatly is the temporary kingdom of Satan, and it's in direct conflict with the kingdom of God. And then the third source of evil in the world is demonic. Uh, Ephesians six ten through twelve that we'll be uh, entering into soon, and and I hopefully I won't mess up uh, Ben's future sermons. But finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Maybe the worship team could uh, start coming forward as, as we move to a close here. I hear a few more things that I want you to hear clearly this morning. Demonic forces can't make you sin. Demons can't make you sin. The devil made me do it was never true when it comes to sin and rebellion against God. But the enemy will help you towards sin. They'll join you in your sin. They'll reinforce it. They'll build it up. They'll make strongholds around your sin. And they can inflict physical disease and health issues directly attributed to your spiritual issues. And of course, your sin is never only impacting you, right? They will help ensure that your sin has the maximum negative effect on the people around you. I'm going to end here today. Next week, we're going to pick this back up with some of the ways that the enemy works in the context of this New Testament use of the word world. Most important, though, we're going to focus on what is the kingdom of God and what is our active role. Quoting Pastor Ben from a few weeks ago, when you know your why, you'll know your what, right? If you recall that sermon, and my hint to you today is I believe your why is tied to the spiritual realm but was reflected through your what in the physical realm. So some very final thoughts here. Please receive these, believe these, act on these truths. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, you and me, may have life and have it abundantly, right? John ten ten. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, right, is greater than he who is in the world. Lastly, Romans eight thirty seven and 39. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.